Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from the year 1990 through 1999 for this season. I also have a Patreon that has episodes drop on my off weeks where you can enjoy more Texas content. This is one way you can help support me and my show. Or I have a link where you can buy me a coffee. However, there is a free option that is actually really helpful to me and my podcast to go and rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. Some have already left a review, and it means so much to me. It also helps my show get noticed by more people. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a female murderer from 1994. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. On January 6th, 1994, figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was attacked after her practice in Detroit, Michigan. She was hit in the right knee and she was unable to complete the U.S. figure skating championships that were being held that week. Four men, including the ex-husband of Tanya Harding, Kerrigan's rival, were later sentenced to prison for the assault. Tanya Harding has always denied involvement. That same year, tomatoes were the first genetically modified food approved for release and was engineered to have a longer shelf life by inserting an anti-sense gene that delayed its ripening. Another thing that happened in 1994 was two women from the same county whose husbands were murdered. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Diane Carlson and Leanne Kilgore were two women who lived 15 miles from each other in Tarrant County, Texas. And in September 1994, Both their husbands were shot by intruders, or that is how it at first seemed. On the morning of September 13, 1994, around 7.30 a.m., Diane Carlson called 911 to report her husband, Gary, had been shot. She found him lying face down in the driveway, wearing only his underwear and a t-shirt. The doors to his truck were wide open and the lid to a crossbed toolbox was also open. When officers arrived, Diane was standing in the front yard in her nightgown, distraught. The officers noted Gary Carlson had been shot twice in the back with a small caliber weapon and was dead at the scene. He was found lying on his back two to three feet from the driver's door of the truck near rear tire. Officers suggested to Diane that she go inside and get dressed as they waited on detectives to arrive. During this time, Diane made several phone calls from her bedroom, each time closing the door. When investigators arrived around 8.15 a.m., she seemed more composed. 
Diane told police that Gary got up around 5 a.m. to get ready for work each morning and generally left while it was still dark. Once she finished talking with investigators, Diane was seen sitting on the curb with friends sobbing as she watched police investigate and search the area for evidence. Police canvassed the neighborhood but found no witnesses by the late morning and didn't even know at that point if anything was missing from the truck. With no clues yet in the case, the investigators asked Diane for permission to search her home. She agreed, at first, but when an officer discovered blood on the refrigerator, Diane flipped out, called an attorney, George Gallagher, and asked the police to leave. They complied with her request, but locked the house up before leaving, keeping her out of her home. Once Diane realized she wouldn't be able to get back into her house, she went into a panic about the cat that was still inside and pleaded that she had to get back inside the house to comfort the cat because the cat was the only thing left of Gary's. The police, however, did not let her back into the house until 4 p.m. when they returned with a search warrant. Diane's attitude was different when they returned that afternoon. She sat in the living room and began to feel ill, appearing sick to her stomach. On two occasions, she went to the bathroom to throw up. After this, she went to the master bedroom and laid across the foot of her waterbed. When she finally moved away from the bed, the officers began to search it and found a white plastic garbage bag hidden under the mattress of the waterbed. In the bag was a blood-stained hand towel, a towel stained with gray residue and pieces of bloodied carpet. It also held a 22 caliber handgun and several 22 caliber bullets. Other evidence in the house was a piece of carpet missing from the living room floor near the front door and a fresh piece of carpet had been put in its place, but attempted to be covered by a small rug. The stained piece of carpet was the one the police found in the bag. Blood was also found on the kitchen sink along with the refrigerator, and a bullet hole in the hallway. 30-year-old Diane Carlson was arrested for investigation of murder at 8 p.m. on September 13, 1994, but was released about 9.15 p.m. after posting her bail of $25,000. Three days later, on September 16, 1994, and only 15 miles away, another 911 call was made, this time by 26-year-old Leanne Kilgore. She called around 12.55 a.m., stating her husband had been shot by an intruder and that he had collapsed in the front yard. When the officers arrived, Leanne was found standing over her husband, pleading, I've started CPR! Help me! She had pantyhose bound around her wrist and was bleeding from a cut on her leg that required a few stitches. The couple also had an 18-month-old son who was unharmed in the incident. It appeared her husband, 22-year-old Vincent Kilgore, had been shot in the abdomen inside the house and then stumbled outside where he collapsed in the front yard and died. After getting stitches for her leg cut, Leanne told police that her husband had heard a noise in the backyard and went outside to investigate. 
He told her to get their gun. She got the gun and waited while her husband was outside. Unfortunately, her husband came back inside the house with the intruder, who had a gun on him. The intruder then demanded that Leanne give him the gun she was holding or he would kill her husband. So she dropped the weapon. The intruder then tied her to a table with pantyhose. During the time she was being tied up, her husband Vincent grabbed a kitchen knife, but dropped it seconds later when the gunman pointed the handgun at him. As soon as her husband dropped the knife, the intruder shot him in the abdomen and then in the back as he tried to run out the front door. After Vincent collapsed outside, the intruder returned to where Leanne was tied up. He dropped the couple's gun and cut her leg with the kitchen knife, telling her that he wanted money and jewelry. While the intruder was in another part of the house, Leanne scooted the handgun up to her with her leg and picked it up. She told police that she fired once at the intruder as he ran out of the house. She described the intruder as dressed in black from his high-top athletic shoes to his gloves, wearing black pants and a dark hooded t-shirt as well. Inside the home, police found a knife and a small caliber semi-automatic handgun in the kitchen area and at least two shell casings on the kitchen floor. The front and rear doors of the home were ajar but there were no signs of forced entry. There were signs of a struggle in the house, but police were unsure if any property was taken. In a press conference, Lieutenant Bill McLinden stated that, We're still unclear about the sequence of events. It's just a big jumble for us right now. I don't know why her husband asked her to get the gun, and he didn't go outside with it. We don't know if the intruder brought the pantyhose with him, or if he took it from Miss Kilgore. She said he put the revolver in the back of his pants and picked up the couple's handgun. Leanne spent many hours at the police station that day, and her family hired her an attorney, but it was made known to the public that she was not considered a suspect, but as a material witness by investigators. As the investigation continued, it was revealed through the neighbors that the young couple had a history of violence and that in the last six months that the couple had lived there, the police were called several times, even though there was no trail of police records. One neighbor stated, They'd get in fights, and he'd take off. He was strange. He'd never look you in the eye. He was low-key, and his wife was tense and gripey. This neighbor also told of an argument from two weeks earlier that resulted in a broken window, and how he was on his front porch when he heard the window break. The autopsy results came back, and though originally it was believed Vincent was shot twice with a gunshot wound to the abdomen and the back, he was actually shot just once in the back and was pierced in his heart. The investigators checked out every police department in the area but by September 25th, there was still no suspect in the case. By October 6th, police asked Leanne to submit to blood tests and provide fingerprints to help in their investigation by comparing them with other similar evidence left in the house. Leanne's attorney, Abe Factor, told in an interview that she would comply with the request that week. And although police would not comment if Leanne was a suspect, her attorney said the police have consistently told her she was not a suspect. 
However, on December 21, 1994, Leanne Kilgore was charged with murder. Investigators explained that police began doubting her story several weeks into the investigation after an analysis of physical evidence found in the house did not match up with what she had told police, and that the grand jury reviewed the case for more than five weeks before indicting Leanne Kilgore. The prosecutor for Kilgore's case, Mike Parrish, said her story sounded similar to that of an account given by North Richland Hills resident Diane Carlson who was indicted that same week on Monday, December 19, 1994, on a charge of murder and the death of her husband, Gary Carlson. Parrish stated, The story that Leanne Kilgore told was on the heels of that North Richland Hills incident. She made some modifications on it and told a story that on first blush sounded good. But after you looked at it, top to bottom, it started to raise questions. As just stated, Diane Carlson was also indicted for murder in December 1994. But not before Diane realized the walls were closing in on her and decided to throw a Hail Mary to try and protect herself and throw blame in another direction by offering a $10,000 reward for information on two men she said killed her husband. She and her attorney bought newspaper advertisements that showed drawings of the two men. Her attorney said, The reward notice has generated some responses. We are trying to develop evidence that my client told the truth when she told police that intruders broke into the house. But in response, police stated, I guess they believe someone else did it. We stand by our original investigation. We feel we have the right person. And just a few days after that, ad came out, Diane Carlson was indicted by a grand jury. Her trial was set to start in July 1996. The prosecutor for Diane's trial was Anne Box. In her opening statement, she told the jurors that Gary Carlson was murdered with a gun that had been given to him by his grandfather. She then told how the couple grew up together, went to the same university, and got married in 1986 then moved to North Richland Hills in 1990. She went on to state that, Then came that day in September 1994. Gary Carlson is found shot to death in his driveway. The security system, which was working, never went off. Police say they found no forced entry in the home. We will provide, beyond any reasonable doubt, that no one other than Diane Carlson could have done this. One of Diane's attorneys, George Gallagher, told the jury in his opening statement that other people may have committed the crime, explaining that within seven minutes after police arrived, Diane Carlson is a suspect, and that focus continued throughout the day. People had other information that they did not investigate. He then told the jury about the ads they put out and that police did not investigate any of the responses they received from those ads. However, 
the jury believed the state's case, and on July 29, 1996, it took the jury just 45 minutes to sentence Diane Carlson to 30 years to life in prison. The motive for the killing is still unknown. Now back to Leanne Kilgore. While under suspicion of being a suspect in her husband's murder, she was actually arrested on November 29, 1994 at a Fort Worth pharmacy after she was accused of trying to use the forged signature of a doctor to fill a prescription for a painkiller. With a charge of obtaining a controlled substance by fraud is pending, she was released, but by the next month she was indicted for her husband's murder and was held without bail pending a psychiatric evaluation and a urinalysis because of reports of her prior drug use and of a recent treatment at a drug rehabilitation facility. She was eventually released on a $25,000 bond that ended up being revoked in August 1995 after she violated the conditions of her bail when she had been accused of failing to meet with probation officers and because she did not inform a doctor that she had been charged with a drug offense when she received prescription painkillers. Leanne Kilgore's trial started in August 1996. At her trial, it became known that Leanne had asked how long it would take to get $30,000 from life insurance just days after her husband's murder, and that from September 20, 1994 to November 14, 1994, Leanne called J.C. Penney Life Insurance Company at least six times to check the progress of a claim on a policy she had taken out on her husband in February 1994. She had also taken out a $20,000 life insurance policy through American Express. On November 10, 1994, Leanne called a J.C. Penney's representative and had told them that she had had many recent conversations with the police and explained to the representative that if they called the police now, they would rule her out as a suspect. She then called again November 11th and November 14th. Leanne decided to testify on her own behalf at trial, and in the five-hour testimony, she told the jurors that she had killed Vincent in self-defense after he tied her up and tortured her with a knife. I pointed the gun at him. I was trying to get him to leave the house. I didn't mean to hit him. I didn't mean to hit him. I didn't even know if I had. I was afraid to tell the truth. I was very, very confused and hysterical and in shock. I could not think very clearly. I was very, very afraid that I would lose my baby. She also testified that on the day before the shooting, she had called her brother-in-law to tell him about a kidnapping Vincent was allegedly planning. About midnight, she confronted her husband in the garage about notes she had found in a pillowcase while doing laundry. She also found pawn tickets for jewelry she had been missing. Vincent became angry and accused her of snooping in his room. He then came up behind her and grabbed her by the hair and put a knife to her throat. He was very angry and he was yelling. He used the knife to cut her on the left arm. After he tied her to a coffee table, he used the knife to cut some of her clothing and scratch her with the knife tip. 
He then cut her deeply on her left thigh. Then he released her by cutting through the pantyhose after he brought the telephone over to the coffee table so she could call back her brother-in-law. And Leanne told him she could make it better, that she would tell Rick, the brother-in-law, she made it up. But instead of making the call, Leanne convinced her husband that she needed to go to the nursery to check on their son, who was crying. When she came out of the nursery, she had a gun in her hand. Vincent was saying she wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to leave, so she just aimed away and shot. He started walking toward her and then started to lunge. So she just closed her eyes and shot again. And tried to shoot a third time, but the gun didn't work. It was at this time that Vincent ran away from the house and collapsed on the front lawn. After seven hours of deliberations on August 13th, 1996, Leanne Kilgore was found guilty of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to seven years probation. And in one article, it stated that after being sentenced to probation, she first had to spend 180 days in jail before her probation could start. Leanne was also sentenced to 400 hours of community service in order to submit to weekly drug testing along with counseling and treatment in a substance abuse program in connection with the two charges accusing Leanne of obtaining painkillers with forged prescriptions a year after the murder. Those cases were still pending, and because of those charges, she no longer had her nurse's license. When trying to research if Leanne's drug charges were ever tried in court, I stumbled upon a custody hearing for her son, Vincent Kilgore Jr., who was only 18 months old when his father was murdered by his mother. Junior was two when he started being raised by his aunt and uncle, Jim and Medina Hicks. They started caring for the boy under a temporary arrangement while Leanne was in jail awaiting trial. Leanne had initially asked her sister to take care of her son, but the sister sought help from the Hicks after some personal issues made her unavailable to the young boy. After staying with the Hicks for several months, Leanne began to worry the Hicks would try to keep her son, and so she signed over responsibility for the boy to her mother. However, Junior stayed with the Hicks because Leanne's mother was an immigration and naturalization service employee and was living in Austria at that time. Within the next few months, the Hicks filed their own petition for custody. After Leanne spent her 180 days in jail, she was released to start her probation and began seeking custody of her son. In November 1997, they went to family court where an important issue was brought up called parental presumption, which is the idea that it is in a child's best interest to give a natural parent custody unless there is a significant reason not to. And the judge in that case, Judith Wells, instructed the jurors that Kilgore had given up the paternal preference by relinquishing custody earlier to her mother. The jurors decided the boy would stay with the Hicks. But two years later in 1999, the Second Court of Appeals ruled that the judge's instruction to the jury was incorrect and ordered a new hearing in the custody case. 
However, in 2000, that appeal was overturned by the Texas Supreme Court in a 9-0 vote. The Hicks continued to have custody of Junior, but Leanne and the Hicks try to remain cordial. They have a court-ordered visitation schedule, where Junior has dinner with his mother on Wednesday nights, visits her every other weekend, and spends time with her on holidays and during the summer. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a male murderer from the year 1994. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to my Patreon to hear an episode from me every week. I would also love for you to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.